Welcome to the Evolution Exchange USA podcast. Uh, we bring together the best technical leaders to talk about their industry passions and challenges they are facing. Uh, I'm Jack Scott. I'm from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, and I help connect the best businesses with top cloud software and data engineering talent. And today I'm your host. So today I'm joined by a couple of great guests. So some topics that should be of interest to all people across the IoT space. Um, Obviously, on the subjects of that, today's episode, we'll be discussing across the topic of IoT. Um, but before we deliver a little bit of a deeper in-topic discussion, let's work our way across the room with some introductions. So, Dan, would you like to kick us off? Sure, sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, my name is Dan Kuhn, CTO at Rise Gardens. Uh, Rise Gardens, we build consumer hydroponic gardens for indoors and growing vegetables all year round. Um my background started in mechanical engineering and then went to, to, into software, and I spent a lot of time in architecture and data. And uh, about five years ago, I joined Rise Gardens and uh, was kind of introduced to having to manage an IoT project for the first time. So I don't have a lot of products in that space underneath my, uh, my wings, but uh, that was the first one. I was lucky enough to have great uh, electrical engineer and firmware developer to help kind of educate me on that front and I was able to bring my management style and processes to it. And so I've really, really been enjoying kind of working in the IoT space these days. Great. And Stevie? Yes. Hi, I'm Stevie Rim. Uh, I am currently acting as head of product management and marketing for a startup company called Mock AI, which is in the space of the uh, project management tools and portfolio management. Um, we're releasing a AI-driven uh, project management tool for people who like to uh, identify bottlenecks in their workflows. And um, my background stems from the uh, semiconductor hardware space, where I was working as an engineer for the majority of my career. I started off in design engineering and then um, went into an applications role where I'm uh, supporting uh, customers and uh, guiding them and hand-holding them to porting uh, code base into their hardware platform. Um, and then towards uh, the latter part of my career, I kind of did a functional pivot into more of a business management um, product marketing, product management role. At the same time, I uh, started delving into more of the um, software, um, digital platform uh, area of technology above the OS layer, as I like to say. And Really, that's kind of where all the uh, I think the most of the dynamic activity is um, going on. But now with the advent of IoT, just as Dan mentioned, I think the uh, the two domains are kind of being interspersed or uh, tied in with each other. And I see a movement of hardware retaining, uh, regaining its value these days with AI and machine learning, and all this other um, nice, uh, you know, n- nice futuristic type of um, you know communisms here in this world. So. Um, happy to be here, and IoT is a passion of mine. Um, sensors, uh, hardware, software, firmware, all that stuff that's um, bundled in together for a nice product, uh, a product that allows connectivity. Well, thanks for those introduction, guys. Um, that's, let's move on to some more specific questions related to the effective use of IoT. So let's just kick things off with uh, a question that Stevie put forward. 
So, which is when developing your company or your business strategies across security, uh, what about IoT made things interesting or challenging? Now, Stevie, would you kind of like to start by sharing your thoughts or put some context into putting this question forward? Sure. Um, so I came up with this question because I think with uh, any type of connectivity, um, you know, you're going to be reaching a kind of a, a broad um, area, and then that area transforms into a surface area that is prone to attack. And um, more, my most recent uh, work with uh, I was I used to be a product manager, platform product manager for Abbott Laboratories, which is in the uh, as everyone knows the healthcare, life sciences, medical device space. So I was working within the business unit of uh, diagnostics, diagnostic equipment. So, you know, there's a lot of <clears throat> uh, movement these days to connect these medical devices online and you know, to the Internet. So uh, but with that there, it opens up a Pandora's box of, um, you know, how are we going to secure this, especially with uh, sensitive information such as you know, patient PHI. Um, I think uh, also like in the financial sector, there's uh, sensitive financial information for people. So uh, there's a a lot of uh you know there's a lot of stuff at stake here and i think what makes it complicated and overall you know you have device variety or heterogeneity can't even say the word but there's you know diverse iot ecosystems just consist of diverse devices from different manufacturers and each has its own specifications protocols and security features so that made it very challenging for us to really uh be able to uh, pinpoint and, and design like a bespoke uh, plan or, you know, a, a plan of attack or a plan of um, um, protection for, you know, for example, it could be an infusion pump or it could be a diagnostic device. It could be a, a, a wearable, right? Uh, blood glucose monitoring systems, which are really popular. And then on top of that, there's a, you know, as I mentioned before, privacy and regulatory compliance that you have to uh, be concerned about. And then with that, any type of other device, um, I'm sure Dan, you could probably speak to this as third-party integration, right? Um, you can't. It's very rare that uh, a product can just come survive on its own. There's always, uh, you know, Abbott's in this in the uh, business of healthcare, but they're not a uh, they're not a uh, a internet company, a connected Bluetooth company. They don't have, you know, they, they need to have third-party integrations to bring that uh, product out the market and to be fully functional so you're all this is just widening the surface area for attack and you know how are you going to approach that with all these moving parts and just kind of like this uh, melange of different um, um, you know uh, device hardware software um, and all the linkings in between them that make them talk to each other well Steve Thanks for sharing that over. Dan, it'd be great to get your thoughts. Yeah, um, kind of in contrast to like medical devices, a lot of your security needs depend on kind of that complexity that, that, that Stevie was talking about. I've been lucky enough at the start to, to have a very homogeneous environment, uh, single type of device and control it all. So, you know, my security strategy when I stepped in was really about trying to leverage uh, third-party tools that provided good, strong best practices and, and really stay away from having to, to write bespoke 
kind of implementations because I, I had a simpler environment. So I was able to do that. So we used something like Auth0, which is an Okta company that, that provided our general authentication. But what I chose for IoT was to leverage uh, AWS IoT. Uh, and it comes along with a lot of great features for managing uh, secure MQTT messaging protocols and TLS certificates. It does your device management, uh, your certificate management, policy management. So you get all these things that really make it nice and easy to, to deal with. And I had a single, even though we have multiple products, I have really a single microcontroller. So we use an ESP32 uh, and that worked really well with that infrastructure. So uh, I was very lucky to have that simplicity and we were able to kind of confidently scale this up, uh, up with, uh, with that. Um, with respect to challenges, I think the, when I, when I stepped in, we were actually, uh, they were actually using what's called VernMQ, which is a kind of uh, specialized MQTT broker, which require us to stand up servers, install the software, do everything. It was really not a managed cloud service, uh, managed databases and monitoring. And I moved really quickly to try and get away from that so that my world of security was very simple and easy. Um, and, and I think that helps you just have better overall security stuff if it's uniform, managed uh, really well, has visibility and so forth. So so those are that's how we kind of looked at it. And again, I was kind of blessed with simplicity and not a lot of really sensitive uh, PII or any risks to, to hackability and so forth. So. Uh, it made my entry into the space a little bit easier. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair enough. Well, a, a question that you brought up, Dan, uh, to myself was, uh, you kindly sent over, what was what types of cloud infrastructure to exist to support IoT products and what type of benefits do they offer? Again, can you go and kind of explain a little bit more detail around the question, kind of any any issues and what you've done to support that moving forward? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of things to depend on. As, uh, as Stevie mentioned, there's some third-party integrations and things you need to really do to integrate into and to support uh, an IoT product. Um, and we were going to stay solely in the cloud. Uh, I chose AWS, but most of the other good comp- uh, cloud providers provide uh, almost a similar set of services that you can leverage. So, you know, um, I'll just give you a kind of an inventory of some of the things that, that, that we used and happened, but they provide really the, the backbone, which is messaging. And in, in IoT devices, typically it's MQTT messaging, which is a, a nice lightweight messaging for IoT devices. Doesn't send a lot of data. It's, it's relatively reliable, but it's okay if you don't get messages. Um, as we just talked about, a security layer is really important. Um, so AWS provided a nice security layer as part of their their AWS or IoT stuff, um, TLS certificate management, client authentications, roles and permissions. That was wonderful. Um, the other thing that they provide is is really facilities for doing uh, um, over the air uh, software updates, so you can do that nicely. OTA deployments, um, and uh, and they provided data storage capabilities. Was, really nice about our scenario is we started out we were just getting going i didn't keep much data i just stuffed it in shared file storage on s3 to be able to see what was going on i was able to evolve a little bit more to a serverless uh uh sql database on top of s3 with athena and then eventually use time stream so now we're able to do sophisticated analytics and so forth and what's great about aws is you just you know basically snap into wherever you want. I want data in time stream, boom, it's going into time stream. Um, 
They have a lot of great analytic facility pieces, um, everything from Kinesis to the database capabilities to uh, machine learning and so forth that you can just snap right in. Other things were better fleet management as you, you manufacture these things. You have to worry about registration, monitoring. Uh, are they available? Where are they? Maybe you have to think about things like uh, shatter devices. So if your device is offline, what do you do about it? And how does that work in your ecosystem? Um, uh, and then, you know, the final piece is really just application integration. It's really easy just to snap into our back end for uh, uh, using Lambda functions at AWS, which are APIs, and then went to our mobile app. So really, it was just it was just kind of joyous to go move that into that. And then in the end, it was all serverless. So I didn't have to worry about scale up, scale down, cost, you just pay by message, basically. So that's what we did and uh, we used and those are my you know, basic thoughts on, on infrastructure. Okay. All right. And and Stevie, what, what's your fault across kind of cloud and IoT? Yeah. I mean, um, other than um, everything that Dan he just said, I mean, pretty much I echo the same thing. I think I would just add that um, you know, there's there, like yeah, I, I I kind of see this at the high level of uh, you know basically you know public cloud, private cloud, hybrid, and then you could have what they call edge cloud where uh, which is kind of like more along the lines where i i, I dealt with it just because we're, we're talking about devices that are out in the field and there's hardware and micro data centers placed closer to where the data is actually generated by these devices whether it be inside of a like i said a hospital it could be inside of a factory uh could be a an automobile on um, and that just you know that um there, you know, you're kind of the focus or the priority is reducing latency, which allows for real-time processing of data, avoiding bandwidth constraints. Um, this is useful for, for example, like LiDAR sensed, uh, autonomous cars, LiDAR sensors, smart cities, and so forth. But then when you're kind of in the more of a static environment, I guess, and then it's more of your typical <clears throat> public-private cloud uh, and hybrid cloud. Um, and I think, uh, one thing that Dan you mentioned was about um, Amazon Timestream, and I I'm not I'm not you know really familiar or I'm not really an expert on this, but I think it's a I've done from the research I've uh, done um, it's a it's great because there's you know it's fast and scalable serverless time series database and it's pretty and it's optimized for heavy IoT uh, data workloads. Um, I think that's kind of key to um, uh, having some type of you know timestamp uh, data streams because a lot of times uh, this uh, this timekeeping is very important um, to uh, gather metrics and um, uh, data for upstream processing to figure out more of kind of a uh, financial you know, ROI NPV you know, how many hours are spent in, in doing something or how how many hours or time minutes are spent um, online uh, that needs to be stored and analyzed over time and I think. Amazon Timestream provides a uh, really good purpose-built database architecture for temporal data. Um, it's cost-effective. Uh, it provides cost-effective storage, and uh, a, from what I understand, there's analytics of in the billions of or trillions of time series events. For example, smart factories, industrial equipment, connected vehicles, energy um, assets, actuators, smart meters, web apps, what have you. Um, and I think the the SQL query, it supports very good integration of SQL queries across terabytes, petabytes of data, I, I'm, I'm assuming. 
So uh, I think this is kind of like the way things are going. Um, but um, yeah, I think just combining the IoT core for device connectivity, data pipelines, and business business logic with a solution like time stream or scalable time series data storage would be uh, it provides a robust cloud platform for IoT solutions, which is what everyone wants. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, appreciate that. Um, yeah, cloud's something that I've always had a deep interest in working in the space for a while. So that, that was very insightful from the pair of you. Um, but another question that kind of Stevie has brought along was how has leveraging IoT data analytics transformed operations, customer support, and an understanding of customer behavior? And in what ways has it contributed to health monitoring and predictive analytics in IoT solutions? So again, would you be able to go into a little bit more detail, Stevie, around that? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, so first of all, I'll kind of address the um, the processes, right? Uh, how it's impacted processes in general, business practices. But um, IoT development processes are more complex, and they have to, as I mentioned before, you have to account for both the hardware development lifecycle as well as the software development lifecycle. So when you have both of these, it, it often means you're integrating methodologies for like agile for software with more linear waterfall type uh, phase gated approaches uh, for hardware. So I've kind of seen both, um, you know, from my experiences in, in semiconductors and with um, software IP. So, you know, when you're meshing the two together, it, it can be quite, um, yeah, it can be quite uh, complex. So there's greater emphasis because of that. There's greater emphasis on prototyping and iter as you know, you don't really prototype as much for um, you know, software. But then again, on hardware, you don't do iterative testing as much. So, given the nature of IoT products, you're going to see a conglomeration of those two or an intersection of those two. Um, and IoT teams, I think they face challenges such as ensuring uh, streamless integration of hardware and software. Um, as I, you know, this kind of builds off of my previous point, uh, you're managing power consumption. Um, the things like, you know, it's polling all the time. You know, the biggest, one of the biggest concerns in medical devices is obviously power consumption. You know, um, do we have this thing? You know, it's, it's on someone's body uh, continuously 24 seven. So, you know, if it's battery operated, you can't, you know, you can't have them you know, go and recharge every, uh, three hours, it's just, you know, it's from a UX, uh, UX or human factors perspective, that just doesn't work. Um, ensuring reliable and secure data transmission, as I mentioned before, and then dealing with just diverse standards and protocols um, across different devices and platform. So, uh, and, you know, I think overall, the overarching thing is that the scalability of these IoT systems, especially in terms of data management and device connectivity, they all post significant challenges um, going forward. Yeah, 100%. Um, and what's your thoughts across that, Dan? Yeah, so um, it, it's actually, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm a data hog. I love data, and IoT provides a lot of information around data. And, uh, you know, it, I, I see it hit in a bunch of different areas for us. So start off with manufacturing. Um, you know, we, we start off the processes, you got to 
you give it to your manufacturer, they build their hardware, then they flash the firmware on your hardware if you want to. Um, and they and we had at that point where it actually then registered the device in the cloud so I could see it coming up. And then we had them do functional testing. We had our contract manufacturer for electronics do functional testing. And then our final assembly of the garden also do functional testing. And the data I collected along the line was great. I could actually find out the pace at which they're manufacturing and flashing, see if they're falling behind, if we're behind schedule. As they ran the functional test, I could see the reject rates and gather data around failure rates of, of, of that and see how that works. And if that failure rate changed as we got them over to our uh, other assembler. So it was really great to see the life cycle of all that come along on just the manufacturing side and help me figure out, you know, how much scrap am I going to get when I manufacture these things and so forth. So that was really, really good for that standpoint. Um, you know, we have a, a consumer uh, product, the garden. And so we have customer support and I was able to build out a lot of great tools for customer support. We had customers come in and, and our, our customer support could come in and see, you know, the full history of all the, the IOT data and see, is it behaving correctly? Are the signals getting there correctly? Uh, they have a strong Wi-Fi. Is their pump running well? Uh, you know, all the things that, that help them get the context ahead of time. Um, and then we could actually layer on top of analytics there. So maybe less sophisticated customer support people could actually get kind of um, summaries of, hey, it looks like this has an issue and it's rebooting. It's been rebooting frequently or a weak Wi-Fi signal all kind of summarized for them when they look at the customer's uh, information. So that was great. Um, and then we gave them tools for like real inter interaction. So, hey, my indicator's not working. So from remotely, the customer support could actually, well, I'm going to light it up and be green. Is it green? Yes, it is. Okay, so the problem must be something else. So it really helped in our customer support operations as well. Um, from a consumer perspective, again, you know, one of the challenges with IoT devices is that setting them up at first, which is called provisioning in the IoT world. So you have to be able to give them your Wi-Fi credentials, connect on and get them communicating. And that can be challenging for uh, a lot of people. You know, they may be forced to kind of connect their phone to a different Wi-Fi, give it its credentials and come back. And um, we, we, we struggled a lot with creating a really simple process over time for people. So the data I collected and the analytics I was able to collect from those gave me a lot of insight and understanding behavior, where the mistakes were. And we were able to, unfortunately, over a long time, really improve the process of provisioning so people would have a nice, easy, simple onboarding experience. Um, and then I think, you know, most people think about this question is probably um, – you know, as we talked about with analytics and operations, which is we use it to do things like give people notifications of system issues to their phone, like your pumps off and not running. And it should be. Um, we can understand if their 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 water measurement systems are going bad. I can predict when their water is going to be running out ahead of time based on their own environmental conditions and give them advanced notifications and, and a bunch of other things that actually integrate with the customer side of the experience. And so. Those are the places that really helped transform and develop uh, capabilities in our operations that, that were helpful. So it was wonderful. Okay. All right. That's quite insightful. Um, okay. So another question that uh, kind of Dan's brought to the table that he asked was, uh, what are some of the differences for IoT products development in team compositions, processes, and challenges? Um, maybe even rela relative to something like traditional software development. Now, again, Dan, can you explain further on this question? You bet, you bet. And, you know, Stevie started to touch on this somewhat in the last question. 
and uh, he's right on it, it. It it adds new complexity. So I grew up kind of like developing traditional stuff where I have a product manager, full stack developers, DevOps, QA, all the normal stuff we do in software development. Um, and then when I had to start managing, you know, my my IoT team, it brought on at least two that I expected, which is electrical engineering and um, firmware developers. And so that's clear. But what I didn't get, and it, it happened is. I had to get close to managing and dealing with manufacturing, contract manufacturers, because component selection and design and the capabilities of those manufacturers become really important. I had to involve my buyers because and this happened during COVID, where sourcing and uh, supply chain were really problematic. So you had to have a lot of tight integration with selection of components, pricing, availability, and those kind of things to be able to do that. And you know, as Stevie talked about, you know, we had to do a lot of prototyping and that's hard to do in those situations. So you have to have a good prototyping partner or capabilities internally to be able to, to do the prototyping. So the team got a lot bigger, which was challenging. Um, and then the other the other aspect that got more difficult, particularly, you know, I'm, I'm an agile software developer guy, is um, really the, the complexity and the types of handoffs. I, I had a distributed team. I had an electrical engineer in Chicago with me. I had a firmware developer in California. I have software developers in Ukraine. And thinking about how you do the handoffs, which are sometimes physical, so I'm having to ship devices everywhere <laughs> um, and do all those things to kind of move quickly and prototype and iterate. So there's those complexities which then, you know, drive a lot of lead time. And then manufacturing drives a lead time. So I had to think about lead times of, you know, and this is probably fast for many people in the product development space, but nine months between like having to finalize my my firmware before it's going to get to production so it has to be well in advance so if you think of any find any issues and have problems you want to fix you're already in production flashed on firmware and it's it's in you know it's in in the pipeline so you have to think about those types of things um and the the obvious one is probably limited resources on these things like memory bandwidth those kind of things are problematic and then the final one for me, which was, I don't know if I really still fall, solved it as well as I'd like to, which is um, thinking about, you know, testing of these devices in the mindset of like CICD pipelines. How do you apply DevOps capabilities to physical devices? You know, so you have to have kind of a farm of these things. You have to write automated software to be able to do the build, run through all the functional tests. And then that, that integration testing has to happen not only on the device and with the physical equipment, like the garden, but also the software we have and those that functionality. So, um, you know, it, it added a lot more dimensionality to it for me, um, which, you know, in my, I really enjoyed. So it was a lot of fun, but I, I had to try and figure out how to apply agile capabilities and iteration to to hardware and software mix, which was, was challenging at the time. Okay. And again, it'd be great to get your thoughts across this, Davey, as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, exactly what Dan said. This is I always like to kind of like see IoT as like the perfect storm of like you're inviting. Um, I'm trying to make an analogy here, but you're 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 you're, uh, you're inviting um, you know people from um, one like uh, here we're in Chicago here, but you're inviting Bears fans over for a Packers party or vice versa because you know we're doing development and software, but you know firmware is kind of some when I talk about like uh, HDL or FPGA where you're programming bits, like my friends who are you know, software developers, you know, they're talking Java or you know, C and uh, Python, Ruby on Rails. Like they're like, 
is that software is that program i go yeah it's it's program i come i do software but they're like that's not really software that's uh you're programming bits and rich but now they get to see this you know our world right or vice versa so it's kind of fun in that way but um as you said it was it's uh yeah, you're trying to um, mix two. They're you know essentially they're kind of the same type of engineering, but it's quite different. So yeah, hard, a lot of people that uh, I worked with, they were you know they had no idea about you know what low level microcontroller code is. And then at the same token, like you know when I was in when I was programming like microcontrollers or DSP, um, writing and you know, doing FPGA ASIC design. UX design, like who cares about I mean, like, this, there's no human going to be touching this. Um, a microcontroller, you know, it's but now okay, so the end users are actual human. UX design is critical. Um, and that's really fun to you know work with. IoT devices, uh products have physical manifestations and industrial designers are going to be needed to refine the device ergonomics and human device interaction, especially with you know, with gardening, I'm, I'm assuming because it's all hands-on stuff, right? Um, and then you need to have field engineering expertise, uh you know, real Operational environments, like you know, it could be, you know, uh, in in you know, in my case, where when I was with Abbott, it could be a lab tech, it could be a physician, it could be a nurse, right? So we need to integrate that. Um, hardware firmware development cycles are much longer, right? Um, and more time is spent on circuit design, PCB layouts, prototyping, as I said before, and certification testing, as Dan, you alluded to, and there's more physical testing, um, real-world testing of objects, you know, heat, heat, right, signal strength, uh, noise, um, EMI, right, this is, we're introducing a new category of, of, um, of uh, standards to which, to which you have to measure up for, right, um, and then but the, on the flip side, shorter software iterations, so you, you can build in microservices, architecture, mobile web web apps connected to the devices so you can um, iterate and release faster independently versus just waiting a long time for the next firmware update. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's kind of like you know, the processes and then, then there's the team composition. Uh, those kind of are the two pillars of what, what makes it different from traditional software design and development. Yeah. OK, OK, all right. Well, um kind of moving on a little bit there um, onto the kind of final bits of the topic. So, um, Stevie, uh, a topic that you kind of brought up to yourself was, can you share insights into the challenges and risks associated with over-the-air firmware deployments and strategies for insurance, security and IoT devices, kind of yeah. particularly in the context of small microcontrollers and canary deployments? It'd be great to kind of go through that a little bit of detail on your side. Yeah, so, um, right, firmware updates, uh, over, like over-the-air firmware updates is something that, you know, other than going the low-tech route where you're just kind of like sending the customer or whoever user a micro drive to like, uh, uh, hey, we got a firmware update, so you got to uh, do this manually. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's really a feasible or, or uh, existing type of um methodology these days right so everything is ota <clears throat> um i think uh you know there's in terms of their the challenge the challenges and risks um you know you're going to be there's network dependency and stability so that comes into play especially if you're deploying let's say you're in a um 
emerging market. You know, this happened when we were uh, when I was with Abbott. You know, we this is a worldwide device, and sometimes the diagnostic testing market is like in um, <coughs> developing economies of the world, like in Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and you know, there's there's no there's no 5G or there's no LTE there. There's no there's sometimes you're going to have places where they're strapped for power, let alone internet. Okay, so unstable slow connections. Um, Small microcontrollers have limited memory and processing capabilities, which can constrain the size and the complexity of these updates, right, that they can handle. Um, you'd be sitting there for hours just for or days to do this um, uh, firmware update, and usually, you know how that is. Sometimes there's an error out. Um, there's, you know, you, you can, if that, if the update fails, you can, you know, you can brick the device, making it unusable. Um, you, it requires actual physical intervention to fix it. Um, there's all sorts of security uh, vulnerabilities, uh, version control and compatibility um, in a diverse ecosystem, device ecosystem can be really challenging. And then that just uh, further accentuates the risk of incompatibility. Um, and then, you know, with that, you know, there's going to be a plethora of strategies for securing these IoT devices, which uh, we can get into here later if you want, but um, I'll let Dan uh, share his views on this. Sure. Yeah. So this was new to me um, <laughs> when I went out, and I'm familiar with lots of ways of deploying software. And um, you know, we got our first thousand devices out there, and all of a sudden, I had my first firmware update, and I had nightmares about bricking all of the devices and having my first 100,000 clients have dead gardens, and I would have to somehow physically, as a startup company, go out and either send them new controllers or get hands-on to do that, and it was just unviable to yeah. consider that at the, at the life cycle of the company. So it's... Yeah, you, you, can't, you, can't, you can't ship them a micro right? Like, you can't ship them a micro state like eight. Hey. Yeah. yeah, there was no interface for that, so it would have been a new, right. basically, module that we'd send them. So, so that, that scared me a lot. So, you know, what I did, um, first of all, I understood it a lot. We used an ESP32, which has an ESP IDF has a great uh, framework for OTA updates. It you know downloads the software if it fails it just keeps trying uh, it cuts it in a different buffer and then reboots if it can it rolls back so it's got a lot of great facilities that help that but um, that still didn't mean I wouldn't brick it if I delivered the software with a bug um, and so what I did is we implemented a lot of logging and monitoring of everything so i took all the iot data and the commands flowing and make sure i i could see what was going on and have visibility and then i chose that i wouldn't do this until i had a canary deployment process which is this idea of being able to slowly roll out your have devices upgrade and monitor them so i started off with just a couple make sure they come back online they work and then i can increase the numbers and make sure everybody kept working uh and in in, in in coming online um so that was what we used. Uh, it worked really well. Uh, I, I pulled off my first deployment, and since then we've been rolling out lots and lots of firmware updates with, without any issues. Um, things we chose to, to help with security and so forth, um, uh, one is we, we didn't really give the users a choice. It wasn't like, hey, you have a firmware update. Do you want to do it? We just decided you're going to get the updates. That means if we do have any sort of security concerns or other concerns, they get it no matter what. We can ensure kind of consistent operable uh, devices out in the field, and that was important for us. Um, the you know the, the process we used was the device would, if it ever rebooted or it sent a signal back, it would uh, uh, communicate its version. If the version was lower than it needed to, our system would say, 
Here's a URL over a secured channel to download. Uh, it would then download it, do a check to make sure the software was exactly what it expected, and, and then reboot. So, um, and the, the software was in a secure place as well. So, so um, that all worked pretty smoothly for me. But like I said, it was pretty scary for the first uh, first time. I can imagine. I can imagine it completely. <laughs> but um, yeah, look, appreciate that. Appreciate your thoughts across that. Uh, but final, final question. Um, obviously, Dan, you've brought this up to me. I you might have had a little bit of discussion across this already. But how do user experience, or user experience considerations impact product design with IoT products? Great to get your thoughts across that, yeah. Dan. Yeah, Stevie. Stevie uh, touched on this a little bit too, and you know a lot of it really depends on who your target environments are and what your target users are, and they they vary vastly. If it's medical devices, sometimes things are running way out in the field uh, and need to operate. Again, mine was pretty nice. I get to sit in a home with Wi-Fi <laughs> in a single place with a garden, so so that was pretty nice. Um, but what I learned is, um, you know, the audiences, at least we had, were very, and many times they are, non-technical, right? So you have to think about that. And in most, in most of us who interact with uh, IoT devices physically, you'll notice that the interfaces are very limited. So you're using very few kind of inputs and things to control maybe a lot of things. How many of us have seen things where, okay, is the light blinking red or blinking green or fast blinking or slow blinking? What does that mean? What's the manual? If you push and hold, things do that. So you have to really think about designing for um, that kind of environment and doing it well. Um, you know, I, we we have a, a, a great uh, product guy that we, we were working with, and we talked about there's this idea of, of intuitiveness and simplicity, and those are different. Intuitiveness can be complex, but you know what you need to do. Simplicity can be totally trivial, but you may not know what you need to do. And so trying to bring those two together as best you can is really important. And so we spent a lot of time trying to get the garden physical device to work um, in with really small amounts of interface. We basically had a button and some lights. Um, and so, you know, those are things to think about. And then I think even with medical devices and stuff, lots of buttons and complexity, you don't want to have to have too much training so people can't make mistakes. So so that user interface on the physical device is important. Um, we also, you know, what's nice is if you're using software, it's a lot easier. And I think we have a lot more experience developing good user experience software. Um, but as you integrate those two worlds, you want to make them be, you know, kind of a seamless world from digital to physical and not confusing and using different terms in your software than is on your physical device. Uh, and so making sure that experience made good sense to user and designing it was a big challenge that that, that we had to work on and, and focus. Um, and, you know, also with, with our garden, some people just really don't want the technology. They just want a garden to grow. That's that's what they enjoy. It's actually about sometimes getting away from technology. So we actually had to design and build this, this concept of saying, what if you don't want to be connected to Wi-Fi or do any of these things? How is it going to function? Will it function well? We called this the Luddite mode. And so we made sure that we designed the firmware and the hardware and the physical device so that you really could operate it without the app and, and connectivity, which, of course, takes away the IoT joy that I get. But, but um, we needed to think about it from that perspective as well. Um, and uh, I think if there's anything else, um, you know, you have to, you know, the, the user has to be able to get feedback from it to know what's going wrong and give them 
information that makes sense without having to go look up a manual and so forth. So that's really important and be able to troubleshoot it. So there's a lot of things to think about. And we had a simple product. Uh, I would imagine medical devices and other types of things have to be a lot more thoughtful on that front. So. Yeah. And Stevie, be good to get your thoughts on a different side of the coin in that perspective then. Uh, one interesting thing is that uh, what, uh, Dan, you said at the end, we're like, um, sometimes uh, the, you know, the customer is always right and you know, sometimes they don't even want connectivity right and that's like uh you know hey we can't argue with that fair enough you know air gap sometimes works you know on-prem then there you know then we don't we don't need to have all the bells and whistles so that actually came up a couple of times you know when we we're uh, working on projects with uh in the healthcare space and also with um in the consumer electronics and automotive but uh you know, you're going to be in some environments where I mentioned before in uh, developing economies, these regions where there is no internet. So, okay, then what's the purpose of uh, you know putting a uh, an ISIM on here that will you know upload the uh, the test result from uh, a, a, a diagnostic test? You know, then, then well, then we have to rethink this thing. Then maybe um, you know. This can impact, you know, the use of a touch screen, or if there's some type of human machine interface where um, it doesn't need to be as seamless because they're going to be manually putting, you know, a blood sample or saliva sample in here. Um, then maybe the 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 UI will uh, dictate that the you know the connectivity or the digital portion of the component of this product is not that's not a priority. So deprioritize it. it basically shuffles the priorities around in that respect. Um, and then I think in this case, less so for gardening tools, I think, but like you have to balance between UX consideration and um, regulatory compliance. So sometimes, you know, the button has to be, has to be visible from, you know, 10 feet at an amber light frequency, like 10 feet away. There's all, if you go into, like especially with medical devices, the, go into the uh, IAC standards, there's some really detailed um, stipulations if you want to get that certification. And, and, and then, you know, even though we want the button to be on top where it's easier to uh, for the user to you know, press or touch, then then they can't see it. So, okay, so what, how do we do, how do we balance that, right? You have to be that, and then that calls for flexibility in unpredictable settings, right? Could be, um, you know, in case of a uh, power surge environment, you know, where there's uh, um, heavy electrical storms, and you know, they need to have a, a ground plug on 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 the on you know, on the actual product itself. Well, then that messes up. You know, then we can't that that takes up real estate for perhaps another uh, interface or a button or a screen. Um, there's yeah, it's 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 really uh, you have to you have to kind of be foresightful and see prepare for flexibility in these unpredictable settings um and i think um you know when you're with iot expanding across other like consumer and workplace scenarios you have to address you know addressing accessibility requirements is mandatory so that's why ux research is done it's absolutely necessary to, to uh, conduct that early enough to assess the needs of the users with disabilities before you build a product that just you know it won't work um and then finally i would say that the because iot solutions comprise of combinations of gateways um 
connectivity modules and cloud platforms and different types of apps to maintain this continuity in interfaces as users uh, go across or traverse these touch points is vital for uh, it's vital to ensure to enable a sticky user experience so that people will stay with that as opposed to like okay well every time I you know every time this uh, data has to go into my um, into a hub then I have to change I have to go into a different user interface then you know, obviously that's not gonna um, that's not gonna result in any type of user stickiness they'll just say okay we're not gonna use this yeah okay all right well um I think that's a great place to try and wrap it up now I'm a I don't want to waste too much of your times um however uh, one thing that would be great I'd ask is just to kind of get your thoughts and your takeaways from the discussion that we've had today. Basically, I'll start with you, Stevie. I'll start with you. Great to kind of get an idea of what you the discussion we've had and just a takeaway that you have. Well, um, you know, I've uh, said this, and I think in in some shape or in some way, shape or form, we've also the same message where um, you know this. Uh, the, the area of IoT, the application space of IoT devices and connectivity will um, involve, require thinking minds to marry the uh, two mindsets of combining hardware with innovative software and also um, adjusting the, 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 the physical user interface, physical design of a product to work harmoniously with that software so this is a in some ways beyond technology it's there's some kind of art form or creativeness that um is involved for you know producing a really nice um elegant iot product that serves and pleases the customer's needs um we we're kind of entering a new um area well i would say a new time period of uh, innovation and technology innovation to where that's um, I think we need to kind of people need to be uh, very adept at uh, that um, marrying of those two domains um, and this will kind of change the way I think uh, software and hard, both hard, hardware and software development um, engineering education might you know it will probably impact the way that this is being taught in maybe schools or um, in organizations that want to um, bring out and uh, increase this visibility uh, awareness of a new type of uh, uh, engineering um, paradigm for people who uh, want to you know uh, continue down this road of uh, IOT development and bring and you know furthering the cost of IOT devices yeah okay and Dan it'd be great to get your kind of takeaways with today's discussion yeah, yeah, Stevie, you got me thinking. I hadn't really thought about this question at the end. So, um, well, what it reminds me of is, I, you know, I believe some of the biggest kind of step functions in innovation and disruptive innovations have generally been the blending of multidisciplinary kind of areas, right? And we've been talking a little bit about, you know, obviously hardware and software, which is what we've been talking about, but really, IoT devices become the interface to a lot of other disciplines. They're the focal point of integrating with biology and humans 
and robots and other devices. And uh, now we can plug AI into it. And, uh, you know, I think it was a book I read a while back they called The Fourth or Fifth uh, Industrial Revolution. It was really about, like, what's really going to go on now is we bring these pieces together and we're going to create leaps and bounds in, in innovation that, that unfortunately is probably uh, society will have a hard time keeping up with. It's going to be disruptive in terms of economics, soci- sociology, people's jobs and roles. And I think we're already starting to feel that at some level. Uh, and it can be scary, but, uh, you know, I think from a technologist perspective, it's also really exciting and a lot of fun. And um, I've been grateful to be able to dabble in this space at the level I have been and, and play with, you know, all these components as much as possible. I feel like ours isn't, you know, a really small ecosystem of the interface of biology. That I got plants I got to grow. I got, um, we're using AI now more in more ways within our organization and, and, and these hardware interfaces and so forth. So, um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting world. This is a great topic, and I think it's go. You know, it's going to continue to be with us and grow rapidly. Um, so those are my thoughts. Okay, great. Well, look, we'll leave it there for today. Um, so this has been the Evolution USA podcast. I do want to take this opportunity to kind of thank both Dan and Stevie for taking the times out of their days for sharing their insights and their thoughts. Uh, I am Jack Scott, and you can find me on LinkedIn or even on email at jack.scott@evolutionjobs.us. Uh, we hope you can join us next time on the Evolution Exchange podcast. Thanks again to both guests, and thank you for listening.